Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, you'll recall, we left Dr. Smith with Will Robinson, both unaware that their every move was being scrutinized from afar by weird alien eyes. What's that? Just a necklace I was making for Penny. That's all they're good for in a place like this. But you know how girls are. Always liking useless stuff. Hey, you want to play chess? Affirmative. I think of the value of these rocks back on Earth. Oh, the pain. The pain. Welcome back, folks, for Episode 8 of Alpha Control, the Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the eighth broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. And I have to say, I think this episode has it all. Weird-looking aliens, perhaps even in a stranger-looking spaceship, and Dr. Smith acting his old nefarious self. At the top of his game. <laughs> Indeed. So, have we finally reached the dawning of the age of Aquarius? Yes, yes, and if I sit a few episodes again, it's over, Lane. It's over, over. I am here to say, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board with you there, although I'll say, you know, structurally this one's a pretty simple story. There's not as many deep themes as there were in Mr. Nobody, but it's packed full of fun. And at times I was kind of getting that same feeling I had watching The Derelict. What about you? Well, whatever it uh, lacks in substance, it certainly makes up in style. <laughs> and and I and I think you know just from the uh, little soliloquies, monologues, dialogues, uh, it's very juicy writing. There's so many quotable bits, and I don't just mean little lines; I mean big chunks of dialogue. They're just delicious. They really are. Well, speaking of writing, uh, the writer for this episode is, you'll recognize the name, Shimon Witzelberg. Of course, we remember him from the unaired pilot for Lost in Space, which he co-wrote with Irwin Allen. And he also wrote the first broadcast episode called The Reluctant Stowaway. And this time he doesn't object to them using his name in the credits? No, he doesn't. He does All not. All right. Well, he did get <laughs> sideways with Irwin Allen over significant dialogue changes to the script for The Reluctant Stowaway, and he insisted in that one that he be credited by his pen name, Espard David. Still, even though he got sideways with Irwin, he was asked to come back and write this episode. I guess uh, after Sean Penn's... Uh, Father got credit for directing. All the pen names got a little confusing, and he decided to go back to his real name. Yeah, okay. 
Well, the funny thing is, though, the story editor, Tony Wilson, did make some significant changes to the script, but Wenzelberg still allowed his real name to be used in this one. And Invaders was not the title that Wenzelberg gave the script. He actually oh, wow. gave yeah. He, I, I think this is probably what I'm sensing here is that now Lost in Space is a big media sensation. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll go ahead and let them use my real name. I don't care. Because <laughs> by this time, I think it was very popular. I mean, it had been on for eight episodes, and the verdict was in. Uh, Lost in Space was a hit. Well, it certainly was. It was winning its time slot by uh, leaps and bounds. But the title that uh, Winselberg gave this one was called Alas, Regardless of Their Doom. And I have to say, I do prefer Invaders from the Fifth Dimension to that title. Another interesting side note is that Irwin Allen didn't really trust writers with the titles. And it's kind of funny because he would inevitably ask his secretary to write five draft titles for each episode. And he insisted that she include something like monster or space or attack or creature in the title. And then he would pick the title and he would have final say over what the title for the episode is. So I thought that was cute. Well, I'll I'll give him this. At least he knew his target audience wasn't Hollywood writers. (laughs) 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 Yes, indeed. The director is the 39-year-old Leonard Horn. The episode was filmed from the 29th of September through the 7th of October, 1965. That was seven days, one day over the allowed six-day filming schedule. Now, Horn was a veteran. He had already directed several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, three episodes of Outer Limits. And before you ask me, the titles of those episodes were The Man Who Never Was, The Xanti Misfits, and The Children of Spider Country. Do you recognize any of those? I will correct you, sir. It wasn't The Man Who Never Was. It was The Man Who Was Never Born, or it was a different title. It was called something like The Man... I'm pretty sure it was just like one or two words off, but The Man Who Was Never Born, or something like that. But I, I was just reviewing that that story and it was just something slightly but it had martin landau in it and it was a phenomenal story and then i think the Xanti misfits had bruce dern in it and that was another outer limits classic so this guy is really really good he's great in lost in space and he's great in outer limit well i'm gonna have to uh send a a, uh, hate letter to uh imbd because (laughs) i literally copied that down i'll I'll correct that i guess well uh, i don't know now suddenly i'm getting cold feet if you if if i MBD said it was that maybe my memory is the memory that never was, but I could have sworn it had another uh, syllable in there or something. But well, I'll uh, double check. One thing I'm not mistaken about is how phenomenal those both those stories were. Great, they were both A plus episodes for Outer Limits, and I think this is clearly going to be A plus episode of Lost in Space. Well, you won't be surprised to learn this was his only episode of Lost in Space that he got That's to. That's right. <laughs> he was one day over, so it doesn't matter how good he was. Yeah. But the funny thing is, he did direct nine episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And later on, he went on to direct a lot of adult crime dramas like Mannix and It Takes a Thief. So, But another thing I want to point out to you is Lost in Space is really slipping farther behind their production schedule. And 
I'm always mentioning how long it took him to film the episodes, but that doesn't include the post-production time. Lost in Space was originally budgeted about four weeks from the start of shooting through post-production until final approval by CBS of the initial cut of the episode. At this point in the schedule, with the late start date and all the accumulated filming delays, Lost in Space was starting to roll cameras only five weeks before the scheduled broadcast day. So they basically had a one-week margin of error, and that's not very good for a television series that's in his first season. They cannot afford to be late. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was noticing a couple of spots in this episode where you could tell that they were rushed. Parts where, you know, the music Mm -hmm. cuts off very quickly. There were some dialogue replacement sections and stuff like that, and it seemed a little rushed. Not that it bothered me. I mean, you know, it's sort of like the the perfect woman with a freckle on her face. You're not going to focus on the freckle when everything else is so beautiful, and that's, that's how this episode was. Agreed. So the episode aired on Wednesday night, November 3rd, 1965, and this one was selected for repeat on August 31st, 1965. So that's a bonus for this one. This one was definitely worthy of a repeat, definitely. I'm sure it was a fan favorite. (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. All the regular characters are featured. Playing the aliens are the guest stars Joe Ryan. He played one of the aliens, and not a lot on him. He had a very brief career as a day player with bit parts in The Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants. The other alien was played by the professional voice actor Ted Lehman, who was 42 at the time. Now, he has numerous screen credits. He would later come back for one other Lost in Space episode, All That Glitters, in another voice-only role, playing the voice of The Dick. His on-screen claim to fame was playing a lovable Adolf Hitler in the 1981 Chevy Chase movie, Under the Rainbow. I don't know if you remember that one or not. Uh, Well, let's see. That was uh, between the other uh, really popular Hitler romance and that sitcom about Hitler and the... No, no, actually, I don't remember any of those. (laughs) You're saying there was a... a, a, Describe it again as you did, a lovable Hitler? (laughs) I'm only reading for my MBD, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have 40 protesters down there that I MBD at 8 a.m. in the morning. I could tell you that if they saw that. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Okay, so let's talk about the story. Act one. We start off with the narrator catching us up from last week. Dr. Smith is complaining, oh, the pain about those diamonds that aren't worth much on this planet, but the lot back on Earth. And just as soon as he utters those famous words, oh, the pain, the view cuts to that weird alien screenshot from above with a clawed alien hand hovering over those jello jello mold controls. And I thought the sound effects were very cool here. Yeah, I heard one from the derelict, you know, the you know that that made an appearance within the ship. It's a very distinctive sound, and uh, it seems right at home in in this fifth dimension spaceship as well. Yeah, it it certainly does. I love the sound effects for something that's pretty simple. It really adds to the mood. But by the way, I should mention the CBS sensors gave very strict instructions that those clawed hands not be too quote repulsive. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> they, were, they were very worried about scaring the kids back in those days. And we get a quick cut to the face of that large-brained alien for just a brief moment. So what what did you think of that alien when you saw him? I loved it. You had me on uh, the, shall I destroy? No, he was just, uh, 
The hands were perfect, first off. Maybe they had to give a manicure or something to get it past the sensors, but the hands were wonderful. And then when they had a close-up of the alien, later on you'll see that he has only one nostril. Yes. And I'm sure that's probably, you know, because that's how they made the mask or whatever. But it was weird, especially since he has no mouth. And uh, it's, it's a cool effect. They, they really get A-plus marks for their aliens. A is for alien. I agree. So next, the view screen indicates that the aliens are in their move because we're seeing the uh, shots uh, from above, like the helicopter shots flying over the desert. And it's interesting that the aliens, so far we've only just seen their heads and their hands. We haven't seen any other parts of their bodies, so I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, some people probably wonder, you know, like, is it a bodiless head? But first off, you can see part of the neck, okay? So if they were trying to get the bodiless effect... They should have covered up the rest of the neck, you know. But uh, the fact that they gave away the hands earlier makes it clear that these these aliens do have bodies. So that's that's off the table, unless those hands belong to someone else. So uh, no, it's a it's a cool effect, but it does disorient you when you see them appear wearing basically black leotards against a black background. Their whole body does disappear. Indeed, it does. So we cut back outside the Jupiter, and Judy is reading a book. And all of a sudden, she's very disturbed because the portable scanner is picking up a blip. And she screams for Maureen. And Maureen comes running in, and she sees the blip, too, and says, That's odd. I've, I've never seen a blip like that before. Yeah, I've seen a bloop like that, but not a blip like that. No, this is basically the same radar footage we saw before, <laughs> except now it's been turned into negative. You know, the, the blip is even in the same spot, except now it's on the other side of the screen because it's been reversed. You know? Three bars out that's three bars out yep and she even says oh well it must be a malfunction but no they're 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 kind of concerned about it. and they called don over and of course wouldn't you know as soon as don <laughs> he's a little perturbed by even being called over as soon as he gets over there he's like well i don't see a thing girls uh maybe you're letting your imaginations get the best <laughs> best of you <laughs> This reminded me so much of the old camera, can, uh, candid camera gag, where they would have the talking mailbox, and you know the mailbox would be having this long conversation with someone, and finally the person would say, "Wait, wait, hold on," and they pull someone else over to the mailbox, say, "Listen to this, it talks," and then the mailbox would be silent. <laughs> so he kind of rolls his eyes and says, "Well, it couldn't have been a blip because then it would have had to fly off the screen." And you're saying it just disappeared, so you know you must have been imagining it. But she actually, the mother actually agrees and said, "Well, we must have just imagined that we saw it." But they actually heard it too, yeah, you know. But- so there were two senses here, and there were two people. What does it take to convince you it's real? They're very suggestible, aren't they? She's something like, "Oh, we must be seeing spots." And- <laughs> Yeah. The men are always right. I mean, you know, the women have to always be wrong, therefore. Whatever. Uh, back at the alien ship, we see more flying footage from the view screen and the crafts approaching. We get the, the impression they're going to land, and they do land. And I love this shot when they cut away to the exterior of the spaceship. We get the first reveal of that spaceship, and I thought it was a very, very imaginative design. What would you think? Oh, I'm just wonderful. Why didn't they make a model of this? I know. And sell it, you know. I mean, a million times better than the the pod or whatever. Uh, this is, it's cool. It not only is twisting around in the sand, it has fog mm. coming out of the little exhaust. 
man, it's got this super cool eyeball mm-hmm. thing going down with the alien appearing within the pupil. It's just, it couldn't be any better. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, and the thing about it, it's, again, kind of like with the derelict on the inside. It's, it had that organic look because nothing was symmetrical about it. Not even one of the legs was symmetrical. They were all a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was so good. I should mention that the ship was designed by the uh, art director, Bob Kinoshita, who designed the robot. And it's one of the very, very, very few Lost in Space props that never gets reused. So, of course, it's... Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Even the music, though, the music is, it's got its own theme. It's different mm-hmm. than the other things that we heard so now when they cut away into the inside it's a little kind of funny that i mean you instantly recognize the saran wrap that's like blowing in the breeze but you have to remember back in 1965 saran wrap was new you know so people didn't see it and recognize it as quickly i mean a lot of people did but a lot of other people it's sort of like you know it would have been like a black light they never would have seen something like that before so it's kind of funny in a dated sort of way. Yeah, it is. It is. So we cut to Dr. Smith, and he's hiding behind some rocks. He's observing the craft, and the, and as you said, the music is very creepy. And then there's that shrieking sound effect, uh, and Dr. Smith even covers his ears in pain, and that alien eye that you talked about, it starts to flash. And, and when glow, d- yeah, and light yes. up. And that's when you see the thing inside it. You don't recognize right away that it's an alien head that's forming the pupil, but you do see something within yeah, Dr. Smith turns to run because his ears are, must be really bothering him, but he is uh, he stopped dead in his tracks by some force, and just before we go to the opening credits, we have a close-up, as you say, of that alien's face superimposed, and oh my gosh, I can hear Dr. Smith saying, oh, the pain, oh, the pain. <laughs> yeah, he's thinking it telegraphically. The best part, though, is when he comes back after the commercial, his body has been moved way back close to the spaceship, but pretending like it's still frozen in the original position. So it's, you know, it's like he's, he's been moved 40 feet, but they're hoping that we're not going to notice it. And they had to do that in order to get him in the shot and everything. But uh, he's very, very convincing in this. When they start pulling him back, it's like a, a tractor beam. And he, you know, at the top of his body is actually lunging backward in a way that's a very convincing mime couldn't improve upon it was uh, i was impressed i was impressed with the whole way he handled that because you know he's not you know he's not seeing everything that we're seeing but the one thing that struck me as odd about this whole scene was it just seemed a little bit jarring to me that we went from seeing that blip to the alien ship and smith just happened to be there and i even mentioned it to lisa i said that's kind of weird we just we haven't seen anything of smith and he's right there on the scene and he's he's already armed with a, a laser pistol and everything and according to the book there in the script originally there was supposed to be a scene that showed uh, dr smith getting into trouble back at the campsite and being banished and so he was out on his own and he was armed because he wanted to protect himself but this episode started a uh, time out long and so they basically scrapped that whole scene and well, that's interesting because uh, it did st- seem strange to me that he had a weapon. I mean, normally they try to keep the weapons out of Smith's hands. Right. Know, it's kind of like Barney and the single bullet. You don't want to give Smith a, a weapon. But as far as him being there on the scene of the spacecraft, I'd have to uh, disagree and say it makes sense that he was there because he didn't happen upon the aliens. The aliens were seeking him out. They knew what they wanted with him. So wherever he was, that's where they appeared. At least that's what my take is on that. 
Oh, I didn't think of that at first, but that that does make sense. So, you know, another thing that was interesting about this, they're pulling him back in, as you say, with that. uh, Well, actually, first they start to speak with him before they pull him in because he starts to bargain with him a little bit. And what I thought, again, this is lost in space. I think this they get kudos for this. The aliens don't just start speaking English. Remember that? Yeah, they sound like they're talking backwards, which is very convincing. Yeah, I I can't understand you. And then they go and say, okay, well, we'll speak English. Now we figured this out. I don't understand. I don't understand you. Are you native to this speck of dust? I beg your pardon? This globule, this, this planetoid. Ah, planet. You mean, am I native in the sense of born here? That is a true statement. You will now reply yes or no. Native? Oh no, not me. You have the wrong party. If it's natives you're after, there's a whole tribe of them right down there in the valley. The natives here are called Robinsons. I could show you the way. I am from Earth. You know, over in the central solar system, just three planets away from the sun. You must have heard of it. Earth. Ah, yes. A minor planetoid still in a near barbaric state of development. Exactly. But I suppose you will do. I'll do? I'll do for what? I doubt if you would understand. Why not? I've got a scientific mind. Very well, then. Attend closely. One of the circuits in our guidance control system has worn out. We must replace what you would call a computer. Ah, well, the natives down there, they've got a slew of computers in their spaceship. I could get one for you right away if you'll let me go. Primitive toys. A million times a million of them would not replace one of our components. Then what do you want with me? Only one type of computer will serve our needs. What's that? A humanoid brain. A what? Even such a primitive one as yours. Mine? Only a portion of it. Oh, no, wait. Wait a minute. You don't want my brain. Why, I'm so ignorant. I'm almost feeble-minded. Try me. Ask me a question. We can remedy that. We may have to reduce your size somewhat to fit the available space. That's impossible. You can't. Why do you say that? I'm a medical man, I'm telling you. The human body isn't a grab bag. It's either all or nothing. As I said, we can remedy that. Everything about these aliens is kind of, um, first off, they're, they're so elevated above us that there's a condescension that's there that just makes you feel like, you know what, they really don't care about us at all. We are to them like little ants that they can smash out. Uh, but the aliens just seem completely emotionless, uh, and they, they make this comment about how even the computers above the uh, on board the Jupiter 2 are just like mere toys to them. Right. Only a, a brain would work for them. And that's one of the things that hints at the danger of these guys. Indeed. So we're they are scary at this point, and they pull him back towards them, and then all of a sudden, I love it, we get the very first time in this, the series where Dr. Smith is 
he disappears, and then there's that boing, that popping yeah. sound effect. That we're gonna hear. <laughs> we're gonna hear that again and again, and it's great to hear it for the first time. And that sweaty uh, Smith is transported inside the ship, and as you say, it's strange because the ship is not that large. I mean, it's larger than a person, but inside we get that effect that boy, it's a vast, endless space. You know, Smith is looking around, and he's he's admiring the Saran wrap and the Jello molds and the Christmas tree lights, and of course the sound effects and it's that large blacked out limbo set uh, and the aliens even tell him don't be concerned that the interior space looks much larger than the exterior of the craft you know remember kids they are from the fifth dimension so time and space doesn't apply here yeah and uh, another thing that occurred to me when i saw it is that maybe he has been shrunk uh that's always a possibility too you know i mean you could if he had been shrunk to the size of his thumb, then of course inside it would look immense. But they do mention that you know, time, space is just a concept that is foreign to this particular place because they're not even on the same realm. And at this point, uh, what I liked is we finally get a really good long look at those aliens. And we just saw a, a glimpse of them before, and we loved them. But now we really get a good look at them. And they're, they are impressive with those large, big brain heads. And the, as you said, the no mouth and the one not nostril and the unanostril the cyclops nose right and i think the intention was for us to imagine that their heads and hands were sort of disembodied most of the time that that effect kind of works against the blacked out set but a couple of times you can sort of tell that they're just more or less wearing you know uh, black leotards or something like that but it's still cool mm-hmm. yeah. and the the discussions they have between them this is where the juicy dialogue comes in <laughs> Because uh, the uh, the uh, Smith is all of a sudden he's right away starting to bargain with them. You know he's he's like you know he's bargaining with the devil, old Smith, and uh, he says, "Well, uh, but you know I'm too large uh, to fit in your your computer, so I can bring you a smaller Robinson who will fit in that." And the aliens excuse themselves to consider his offer, but as soon as they turn their backs on Smith, what does he do? He tries to shoot them, and of course they. <laughs> Remark that this is a sign that his his brain is defective, which is kind of a, a probably an astute uh, thing to observe because Smith does this so much. I mean, it is kind of the sign of a defective brain. Yeah. There seems to be no opportunity in which he doesn't try to betray somebody that you know he passes <laughs> up. But he he seizes on this and he, you know he says, "Oh, that's it exactly. I'm a scoundrel, a thoroughly bad sort, hopelessly unreliable, and I'm doing you the greatest favor by fetching a substitute for my morbid villainous brain." Eddie Haskell's back on the set, isn't he? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> So in this in this sense they say well they agree to his plan so they say okay bring bring us the small Robinson but they don't trust him completely do they No they have a backup plan <laughs> phase phase B <laughs> the little ring around his neck Yes, the little ring around the collar, the obedience ring. And this was kind of neat because, you know, we've seen this now so many times we forget. You know, Star Trek used this same kind of thing. Uh, but Lost in Space, as far as I know, that Lost in Space was the first show that ever came up with something like this. The little uh, insurance policy, as you say, a little obedience ring. It's, it's there to remind him that he's on a mission from them. And in addition, they give him a little uh, golf ball-sized homing device that will... Because they're going to move their location, they say we to guard against treachery. We're going to stay on the move so that you can't uh, sneak up on us. He 
He's uh, promised them that he will bring them a small Robinson. They warn him, though, if he if he fails them, he's going to be terminated in exquisite agony. And this this ring around the neck isn't just a plexiglass or plastic ring. It actually has some sort of a light diode in it that blinks when it comes on. So even when he rolls over his turtleneck shirt <laughs> over it, you know, whenever it goes off, you kind of hear him go, Dah! and you see the light underneath the, the shirt go off. So it's, it's a great effect. It really is. So after they issue their warnings, they pop out of sight and Smith gets to work. So next we cut back to the campsite where the robot, it, It's this was funny, I thought. You know, he's doing his bit as a scarecrow. <laughs> he's standing up there with his arms extended and Will comes along and he's not happy about this. He's, what are you doing? He's like, the robot, I'm a scarecrow. And even the robot sort of sounds like he's put out by having to do this. Yeah, for a moment there, I thought he was going to say, I am practicing my yoga. Because <laughs> you know, he's doing these strange moves. But no, the scarecrow is even funnier. It really is. So Will scampers off to say, well, I'm going to tell Dr. Smith to stop making you do this. And before uh, he's out of sight just for a second, Dr. Smith comes running up and he's like, Will, Will, come back. But Will's out of sight already. And so Dr. Smith <laughs> turns around and asks the robot if he can remove that little ring around his collar. And the robot says, oh, of course, 50 thousand volt charge and just before he even tries that that little ring zaps him again with a love tap doesn't it yeah and of course i mean i i was thinking you know fifty thousand volts here probably killed dr smith anyway i mean even if <laughs> even if the aliens didn't give him the the blip he probably would have gotten the shake and bake you know yeah well so, he... no, no quickly erase that <laughs> we've seen before how smith is uh, you know almost fried several times when he asks you know to heat up the uh, his his body the same way when he was aboard the the cold Jupiter too and he almost got ten thousand volts then and you know so you can't trust this robot uh, for sensitivity training and no no so the Smith decides against having the robot try to remove it and then he glances over towards the garden and there's sweet little Penny alone weeding that garden and he he scampers over to Penny and starts uh, talking to her and una- oh but not before delivering a, a great line to a robot <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> You, inside the spaceship, I prefer working without an audience. Hello, my dear. Completing your daily chores, I see. Don said if we didn't watch these carefully, the nitrogen in the atmosphere would make them grow as big as our spaceship. Penny, my dear, when you're finished, there is the most incredible thing I want to take you to see. It'll be our little secret. Let us in on your little secret, too, sir. Oh, it was nothing, nothing at all. Just a little child's game I was going to make up. Oh, come on now. What are you up to? You have an evil, suspicious mind, Major. I just happened to be off for a stroll. You didn't see Will by any chance. He went off to the lava bed, rock hunting. You stay away from that boy, Smith. Not very concerned about his higher education, are you? I am concerned. Every time I see him with you. And let me tell you something. If I ever catch you telling that boy wild stories again, so help me, Smith. Don, you have no right to. That's all right, my dear. Sorry. No need to threaten brute violence, Major. I know how afraid you are of my influence and how easy you have found it to forget all the good things that I've done for you. Good day, my dear. Good day, Major. There is no hatred for you in my heart. Only pity, sadness and pity. Just go. 
great it was really great so you really get the impression that don knows right away smith's up to no good and the act ends as we see smith concealed behind some rocks watching will hunt for some new radioactive ore in those lava beds and he does look like he's a tiger stalking his prey doesn't he yeah i was thinking just a cat going after the canary but you (laughs) definitely get this feline you know, feeling yes. about how he's he's sneaking up on him. In fact, the first shot, you see a body walk by and you don't even see the head, so you can't be sure who it is. But you could tell by the way it's walking, that person is up to no good. They're sneaking mm-hmm. past Will. And sure enough, when he you see him hiding behind those rocks, it's just sort of like, I'm almost there. I could almost taste it. When we come back from break to start Act 2, John's enjoying a nice jetpack ride over the uh, desert territory. And, of course, I like this footage. We've seen it before. He's uh, he's out there over the desert. But then he finally comes back to the uh, Jupiter 2 and lands. And when he does land the jetpack and walks up to the ship, we see a, a worried Maureen. She's hurriedly trying to get the chariot re- ready for some sort of search mission. And when John asks what's going on, they don't really exactly know. He's, he's all excited because he's found a new source of fresh water, but the, all they can think about is, well, Smith was acting suspicious, now Will has gone missing, and I'm thinking it's time to put a leash on these kids because it seems every other episode they're missing. Yeah, you have to ask yourself, when is an episode in which Smith is not acting suspicious? <laughs> I mean, just, that would be the most suspicious thing of all, is if he wasn't acting suspicious. This is to be completely out of character for him. But it is sort of fun how John and Don are a little testy at this point, because because, you know, Don, uh, John's mood, his his buzz has been completely bummed by uh, <laughs> Marine's uh, uh, notification that uh, the son may be in danger. And now he's just kind of uh, barking short orders at, at Don. And Don says, I don't mind taking orders, but, you know, this this I'm not a field hand here. Yeah. And yeah, Marine basically says, now, now that's enough, Don. Let, let's try to uh, locate uh, Will if we can. And Don apologizes when actually it should be John who does it, but then John kind of just rests his hand on Maureen's arm, and it, it seems very believable at that point. You know, it's sort of like, okay, well, at least they're staying focused. Yeah, well, John got perturbed very quickly because he thought he was coming home, I think, with all this good news and was going to be the welcomed hero. home hero, <laughs> exactly like that. And then he's he's confronted with all these problems and even takes time to sort of uh, mouth off at the robot for not uh, not keeping an eye on Will. <laughs> and the robot blasts it right back at him and says, I am not programmed for babysitting. <laughs> exactly. So this is like the, the deal between West and Robinson is kind of like shades of what we saw back during that episode, The Hungry Sea. I mean, Don's not really challenging John's authority, but he does, doesn't really like being disrespected. But this was another little interesting thing from the script. Originally, Maureen had a much harsher line that, she, and I'll just quote it to you, she was supposed to say something like, both of you quit acting like barnyard roosters. Let's go find Will. And of course, CBS <laughs> cut that right out of the script. They said, that's out of character, Marine, and that's setting a bad example for all the wives at home. <laughs> yeah, they're sitting there going, this isn't really 1997, so please, let's remember we're in the 1960s. It's also kind of funny that they're, he's saying, I'm not a field hand, because in the earlier scene we saw that's exactly what he is. He's a field hand. He's out there digging the ditches. You know? so, oh, well, they could pretend anyway. Yes. You can call yourself a pilot, even though for the whole first season, you're going to just be sitting there hoeing rocks. Hoeing rocks, digging wells, <laughs> drilling for ore. 
it's pretty much true. He doesn't get to pilot <laughs> for the rest of the season. So you want to pilot, you can pilot that that row of onions straight as could be, right on down that valley, right there. There you go, boy. Just make sure they're little green onions. Uh, <laughs> little green onions. Uh, so, Lots of them. Indeed. So off they go to look for that small Robinson Will. And next we cut to a scene. We see Will. He's climbing over these rocks at the lava beds. He's using his Geiger counter. And we see the lurking Smith there. And he's getting a little more encouragement from his new bosses with that obe- obedience ring. Hurry up, hurry up. You and don't. so... <laughs> We're about to go into another Oscar-winning performance for Jonathan Harris, acting like he's acting. And you know it's going to be good because you hear that Herman Stein, Dr. Smith music welling up loud and clear. So pay attention, folks. It's going to be good. It and is worth mentioning here, though, that you know if you're going to try to watch out for your kids, it's not just a matter of keeping an eye on them and you know a cyclops-ridden uh, planet. You might also want to discourage them from collecting radioactive rocks. I mean, come on! You know, I, I, you know, we got rid of. We told them that the poison, the poison snake collection was out, but you should have also mentioned the uranium ore collection should also be out. You know. Yeah. And by the way, when you're decontaminating space uh, spores and everything else, don't bother to wear gloves or a mask or anything like that. Just get right down there with them. <laughs> you got to spell everything out to these kids. Otherwise, it's going to be the pistol collection, the blasting caps collection. I mean, this, this planet has everything. So please take care. No, but Smith has great line in there. He says, you know, oh, he feigns like he's sick. And he needs Will to help him. And the only way that Will can help him is to use this new medical device. And Will says, what? This looks like a flashlight. And he goes, a flashlight? Oh, no. This is an ion generator to purify the negative multiplications that poison my metabolism. Will, yeah. sticks, the, Will sticks the flashlight in his mouth and, uh, you know, beams the light in there. And Smith feigns like he's been, he's been saved by the flaming beard of Hippocrates. Ah! By the flaming beard of Hippocrates, you have the golden touch about you, my boy, and no mistake about it. You saved my life. You did. As good as any surgeon could have done with a whole battery of knives. But your loved ones, what a pity you can't do the same for them. Why not? Didn't I tell you about the malevolent alien power threatening at this very moment to scoop them up like butterflies and take them back to their own repulsive planet to study what makes them tick? What kind of power? They're only about a million years ahead of us, that's all. Wait until you see their spaceship. It's out of this world. Gosh, what do we do? Do? About what? To save them, my folks. Heaven knows. I would spend my worthless life in the attempt. But I can't do it alone. I'll go get Don. No, you won't. He'd ruin everything with his brutish military solutions to the most delicate problems in human communication. And the ferocious grudge that he's got against me. Not that I ever claimed to be a saint. Oh, no. Never anything more than an ordinary, fallible human being just minding his own business. What we need is resourcefulness, quick thinking, surprise, and undaunted courage. Do you really think I could? Yes, and prove to your mom and dad once and for all that you're a man, that you're somebody who can be trusted to choose his own friends. But how? 
bless you, my boy. Didn't you think that your dear old Dr. Smith had a neat little scheme up his sleeve this very moment? Scheme to do what? To infiltrate, to pull the wool over their eyes. Together, we overpower these heartless foreign creatures, take over their spaceship and return to Earth in glorious triumph. Well! Well! And there's several points in which Will makes the, you know, common sense suggestion and Smith is right on top of it. You know, it's just amazing. Well, he is, but he knows how to appeal to to Will's higher sense of virtue or something because he says, you know, brute force won't do in this case. We need to use our brains. And of course, that appeals to Will because Will thinks of himself as a smart kid and he is a smart kid. So, you know, let's don't use force. Let's use our cutting and everything. And at that very moment, though, they hear the sound of John calling out from the chariot's loudspeaker, and the boy's torn for a second. He knows he should answer, but Smith has already warned him that if he gets his parents involved, it could spell all their doom. So he sits there and waits, and I love... Oh. There's some real close-up shots on Bill Mooney's face and Jonathan Harris's face, and I, I just you could just see the gears turning, and, and it was it was beautiful. And, and finally he goes, well, I guess... I guess maybe maybe it would be best if we we just handle this alone. And Doctor Smith, <laughs> this slight little grin comes across. Yes. across if yeah. someday you'll all be thanking me for this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we cut back to the chariot, and once again, Maureen's looking outside. I don't know if she has the uh, the space binoculars or not, but she looks over to the side, and there's that alien ship from a distance. And of course, one more time. Before yeah. she could get John's <laughs> John's attention, it disappears right at the last second. Yeah, when, see, part of the problem is that the men don't really trust the judgment of the women. So when they say, John, look, you know, it's always this like, I'll take my time before I turn my head. And, of course, it fades out just then. And uh, uh, it's a great effect, but she's second-guessing herself again. She is. She's second-guessing herself. But before the act ends, we see the chariot now on the view screen from inside the alien control room, and we hear the voice of the aliens, destroy? Yeah. Wait, they may be of some use. We can always dispose of them later. <laughs> da -da -da. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great cutaway, but you know, it is worth mentioning at the beginning of the scene, it started out with John in the driver's seat. Well, now... Marines in the driver's seat. So she's graduated from not being able to hold a flashlight to actually driving the chariot. So I guess, you know, we really are moving forward into 1997. So that's a nice uh, set. Yeah. But uh, this whole thing about, you know, her not trusting her eyes, that's, that's certainly not, you know, the feminism of our generation. She should have said, damn it, I saw it, you know, come on, stop, stop second guessing me. I just saw it. But she has a great line. She doesn't say that she saw a spaceship. That would have sounded like something coming from a rider. What she actually says is, well, for a moment there, I thought I saw a balloon or a spaceship. And I thought that was really convincing because it did kind of look like a big balloon, you know. Mm. And she's trying to force 
something that makes sense out of something that doesn't make sense. And that's how it is when you see something that you don't recognize. I remember once at night I was walking along and I saw what looked like a dog behind a a tree. Well, it turned out it was just a twisted stump. But, you know, your mind tries to make a connection. And she saw this bulbous thing that was big and round. And, you know, it's an eyeball-shaped spaceship, but there's no such thing as eyeball-shaped spaceships. So in her mind, the closest thing was a balloon. So it was it was pretty uh, subtle and, and convincing. It was. It was better than just saying straight out, there's the alien ship or something yeah. like that. So. Or I could have sworn I saw an eyeball-shaped spaceship over there. No, a big balloon or something. Right. And it, it helped explain why John discounts it sort of like, well, you know, there's not going to be a balloon here or a spaceship for that matter. You know, putting those two things next to each other just kind of made them both seem ridiculous. Right. You were right. So we come back from break, and Act 3 begins with John Marine and the robot at the lava beds. They discover Will's geologist gear, his footprints, and Smith's flashlight, and they smell a rat. Maureen's putting it all together, especially with that blip. And they quiz the robot about it, but he doesn't seem to be able to help. He just nothing computes for him. And Yeah, he says insufficient data. You right. Know. Notice how he doesn't say insufficient data. It's always insufficient data. So for people who've always had that question, is it data or data? We've seen from the future now. It's it's definitely data. Uh, but you know the the funny thing on this thing is that when uh, Professor Robinson asked, "Well, which way did they go?" Insufficient data. It's sort of like, wait a minute, you just saw his tracks. Why don't you try the old-fashioned method and just like follow the tracks? <laughs> mm. I, mean, I mean, I guess in 1997, that's just too uh, primitive, but it worked for centuries and centuries before. So you know, two sets of tracks should be kind of easy to follow. You would think so. So we cut back. We're on the road with Will and Smith again, and they're passing through now the back lot uh, set, that jungle set called the moat with the uh, rock wall and the the jungle vegetation. And just like Abraham leading Isaac to a sacrificial altar, Smith is leading Will to his doom, and he's not going to reveal his true intentions. They hear John calling out again over the loudspeaker, and Smith dives into a cave and puts his hand hand over Will's mouth says, don't don't cry out you have to be strong my boy yeah it's almost kind of like a, now you really are kidnapping this kid I mean what's next wrap a rope around his, his Can you hear us, Will? wrist or something but he still it's almost like he has to remind himself oh wait you know uh, it's better to do this with mind rather than with brute force. And so he does this little manipulation routine on, on uh, Will when Will wants to drink some water. And boy, is that a beauty to behold. Yeah, but before he gets to the water, don't forget about the, the old... Walkie-talkie. Uh, the quicksand yeah, pit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because see, uh, you know, the first time I saw it, I didn't really make put two and two together. But Smith hears in the cave that Will has a walkie-talkie. He always carries it with him. And so immediately, Smith thinks, okay, I gotta get rid of the walkie-talkie. So then when they, he leads Will towards a sand, a quicksand pit, and just before he steps into it, he holds him back, and Will goes, wait, that, you're hurting me. Oh, don't you know I just saved your life? Here, give me that. And he takes the walkie-talkie, and he turns on the squelch so that it makes a noise, and he says, hear that sound? And he throws mm. the walkie-talkie into the sand pit, and it disappears slowly. He says, that would have been you if I let you go one more step. So he's done two things here. He's established that he's to be trusted with Will's life, and he's also taken away the only uh, means of communication Will right. has with his family. He's killed two birds with one stone. And Will even says, well, now I can't talk with him. And Smith says, that's the idea. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Smith gets it for sure. So we get a cutaway to this time it's Don flying the jetpack searching for Will. And boy, Irwin must have sunk a lot of bucks into that uh, jetpack footage because we're seeing it uh, uh, twice in one episode. He's going to use it every chance he gets. But uh, it's cool. I, I, I do like it and everything. But, Did uh, you notice it's got its own theme? So it's got the jetpack theme. And then every time it cuts back to the chariot, the chariot's got a different theme. So we're hearing both these themes juxtaposed over and over again. It's cool. Yeah, it is. Okay, so back on the road with Will and Smith, and they pass that rock formation. This was what you were getting. There's this nice little spring flowing across the rocks, and Will's Will's thirsty by now, and he he reaches his hand out to scoop out a drink, and once again, Smith snatches him back before he can, and Will's like, what? What? Oh, yes. You almost killed yourself. Don't you know that will eat away your skin faster than boiling water takes away the skin from a peach? Oh, come on. You're just trying to fool me. That's what I think. Really? Then mm. go ahead. Yeah. Stick your uh, the, hand in it and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love this because Smith Smith is, he just sort of freezes and then he sits back. He sort of leans back against the rock and he's taking an awful chance because I'm betting that's just water, but sure. uh, we don't know. And uh, he's like, well, I'll, let, I'll put this to the test and see if I could do it. But he's taking an awful chance. And it's so great because Will, as you said, he goes, I think you're just trying to trick me or, or get back at my parents or something like that. And he says, I'm going to take a drink. And he reaches his hands out and he just about touches his and he pulls him back and he just about does it. I think he does it like three times. All right. If you think I'm a humbug, go right ahead and put your hand in the water. Go on. You shouldn't be afraid to put your hand in what seems to be clear, harmless drinking water. Go on. Well... I apologize. I'm mad at myself for being so mean-minded. Will you forgive me? Don't give it another thought. Now, let's get along, shall we? It's wonderful. And, and you get the feeling that Smith is almost like, well, if I'm going to send him off into the nether regions for the rest of his life, I might have one last little fun with him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> to see how, how deep I can sink those claws of manipulation. And you're right. He's completely relaxed and he's leaning back against yeah. us. He's enjoying this even he, more than we are, if you can imagine that. And the so. payoff is when Will actually apologizes to Smith for being so mean-minded. And Smith just gets this look of satisfaction. It's just like the last episode where he said when he's, when he's lying, he makes you feel like he's the victim. But he's... He's very gracious. He says, don't think another thing about it. Now let's get back on the road. Smith is in control. Yeah, and that tells him now, you know, he'll be able to basically tell Will to just march right into the the spaceship like a, you know, a Judas goat leading mm. the sheep, except the Judas goat in this instance can wait outside. He's just going to tell the other sheep to march on in and they'll get butchered on their own. It's it's pretty creepy when you really stop to think about it. But at the same time, you, you can't help but admire just how... <laughs> successful he is at this game oh my gosh it's 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 i mean this is really great stuff here so we come and remember back. he's he doesn't just do this with kids he also does it with adults i mean he completely pulled the wool over don's eyes mm. with mr no nobody and the drilling uh, rig so he's well versed at this it's it's a sight to behold 
It really is. We cut back to John, Marine, and the robot, and they now, now they finally discovered some evidence. They discover blast burns in the sand, and Marine asks the robot if those blast burns are from an alien ship, and the robot reminds her, I thought this was great, that on this planet, the Robinsons are the aliens. Yeah, touche is what she says. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's kind of, you know, clever because a lot of people forget that, you know. It, it, like they keep having these instances. Nobody brings this up when they have the, you know, the sun and planet shake. So they keep calling them earthquakes. Mm. You're not on Earth anymore. They're not earthquakes. I mean, maybe Earth is quaking at that time in the other side of the galaxy. But, you know, you're experiencing something different. It's so typical of us, though, to always be you know, human-centric, if you will. Right. I mean, everything is centered around us. In this case, the whole universe is centered around us. The sun is the sun, and the earth is the earth. No, it's a different sun. It's not called, you know, it's the sun of that system, but it, there, it's different. We're, we're not, we're the aliens. We're the invaders. So maybe they're the invaders of the fifth dimension, but we're the invaders from the earth dimension planetoid globular <laughs> well it's funny that you bring that up because in the very beginning of this episode smith even said i'm from earth you know over in the central solar system so it's like earth is not in the central or the soul's not the central solar system but you're right we're very uh human centric or earth centric but the robot but they did they did recognize earth did you catch up on that they, oh they yes uh, another primitive planet in its barbaric stages you know mm. so i mean these people they are super intelligent they not only know the language of English, they know all about Earth. You would think just the fact that they know English would be an indication they would be familiar with Earth. I mean, I kind of doubt there's another planet in the universe that just happens to have the same language. But, you know, who knows? Coincidences do occur. But these guys are really on top of the intellect, intellectual pyramid that nothing sees beyond them, except to carry spare parts for their computer, that is. <laughs> Well, the robot does confirm, and I thought this was cool. They ask him, you know, are they human? Or, or someone, maybe it's John asks, are they human? And the robot says they're anti-human from an anti-Earth, which I thought, wow. Now, we haven't even heard the word fifth dimension yet, but I think we're going to get to that later. But uh, they ask if the aliens have will, and he doesn't know, but it's possible. So they do move yeah. on. Well, uh, he throws out something there, which I don't think that they follow up for many, many episodes, if ever. And he talks about, but you're on the right track. And Professor Robinson says, says, well, now he's reading our mind. He says, the brain puts out thought waves. Thought waves can be interpreted, and you are thinking the right thoughts. You know, like it was almost suggesting that the robot does have semi-telepathic abilities. Did you? Mm. Yeah, think? I got yeah, I got that too. He was he was reading not reading their minds, but he was picking up on their brainwaves some way somehow. So that's a pretty cool robot, but apparently he's much too primitive for the invaders from the fifth dimension. To Mere use. toys compared to all computers. <laughs> Indeed, we cut back to that alien control screen, and that hand is hovering right over that jello mold, ready to pounce. Destroy now? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking, go ahead, destroy. I want to see I want to see that. Or at least Jerry. say, yes. No, just kidding. Not yet. <laughs> Back with Will and Smith. Smith's all sweaty and out of breath, and he simply must rest. And as he sits there, Will sees that Smith's holding that little alien golf ball, and he asks what it is. Oh, it's just a little souvenir he managed to steal from the aliens. But before Will can examine it, it pops right out of view and <laughs> That's the sign that those aliens are near. Smith tells Will that the aliens 
They just want a human specimen to examine. Perhaps they already have one of your sisters. Oh, yeah. See, now Will's going to have to go inside the spaceship to save Penny or Judy. Mm. Yeah, he doesn't say this. He infers it all. But it works. Now Will's, you know, a willing captive. He's going to go right up into that spaceship. But he also couches it into a little game. He says, you know, now it's time for us to play our secret agent game. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, Remember, so, courage and fortitude at all times. Right, because when that ship appears, all of a sudden Smith's like, okay, you know the plan. Everything We've discussed everything. Well, we, we never really went over it, Dr. Smith. What's that? my boy. You know the whole plan. But you never really explained it to me. Never fear, my boy. I will always be closely at hand. Meanwhile, remember courage and fortitude at all times. Courage and fortitude. Hello? Hello? I'm Will Robinson from Earth. Just remember, courage and fortitude, my boy. And he's pushing him forward. <laughs> Never surrender. Never give up. <laughs> and and this is, of course, is that scary spaceship. It so is. It and takes then, a lot to march towards that thing. The music is playing, and the the sound effects, and the the dust is kicking up, and Smith smiling there as Will marches forward towards that alien ship, and the act ends with a pop, and then Will's gone, and we're just gonna have to wait. We're gonna have to wait. <laughs> The last act of the episode opens, and we're watching as the Robinsons are still searching for Will without luck. And we cut to Smith, who's getting a few little last-minute love zaps from that ring around his collar. And that's... What, what do you still want with me? I delivered the goods. <laughs> and then we see a close-up of the alien's face through that uh, ship's eyeball. And uh, they say they can't let... They can't let Smith go until they've tested Will's brain, and Smith assures them, oh, it's top quality, and he demands to be released, but now they reveal, well, you know, we're, changing, we're now altering the deal. We might need your brain as well. Oh, but uh, to their credit, Will, uh, Smith says that was a part of the deal, and they renege, and they say, very well, you know, they let him go, or maybe they, they tested Will real quick, but it, I got the impression that sister like, well, a deal's a deal, even with the devil. Yes, exactly right. He enforced his contract there. So Smith is the ring the ring disappears around his neck and Smith is free to leave, which he quickly does. And then we cut back inside the ship and we're back inside that big giant uh, black uh, limbo room and Will's looking around, he's admiring all the saran wrap and the the uh, plastic globes that are spinning overhead. And he starts to ask about the size discrepancy between the inside and the outside of the ship and here's where we finally get the connection because the Aliens tell him this ship exists inside the fifth dimension, which is where the title comes from, I guess. Greetings. You are a Robinson. Is that correct? Yes, sir. One of them, anyway. How come it's so big in here and so little outside? Within this ship, we are in a field of fifth dimension where size has no meaning and is beyond your present capacity to comprehend. That foolish man who brought you, he made you believe you could betray us and employ our vessel to return to your own primitive planet. 
Is that not so? Yes, sir. Your moral programming is admirably straight. The truth is we need more than the power of your brain. We have been traveling since long before the earliest moments of your planet's history. Our mental powers have grown weary. We do not intend to harm you, but we need your youth, your freshness, your curiosity. But I'm not curious or fresh, and I just look young, honest. Well, the funny thing, though, is, though, that they tell him it's, it's not just his brain that they need. They need his youth, his energy, his curiosity to revive their spirits, their, their alien world. They've been traveling for, for thousands of years, and they've lost their nerve, apparently, and they need him to revive them. Yeah, but he, he uh, basically tries to deceive him at that point. He says, oh, I'm not really that young. I just look it, honest, you know, and I'm not curious at all, which, of course, for Will is completely uh, not true at, in the slightest. Will's the most curious of the whole gang. So uh, at that point, they yeah, they pop out of you, right? Uh, we don't want to listen to you. But so we cut back to the chariot, and the Robinsons have finally picked up that signal, and it's a it's that strange blip that Maureen saw before, and they park and they see Doctor Smith is running towards them, and he goes into full Smith mode. They've got Will. They've got Will without missing a beat. They said something, some rubbish about using his brain for a computer, and I barely escaped with my life. We've got to do something. Yeah, he actually seems genuinely concerned. I mean, with Smith, you can never really tell. But, uh, you know, there's times when he acts like he's acting. This time he really looks like he's concerned. But he's gone through so much manipulation, it's just hard to believe that he actually even has the slightest shred of regret. But they've taken that, that thing off of his neck, so maybe now, you know— the panic has left for his own skin, and maybe he really is worried about Will. What do you think? Well, I was trying to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, yes, that's one of the points I was going to make later is, you know, the entire time he's been basically under duress. Now, he is still Smith, but if we're going to think charitably of him, that may be the way to, to do it. But John tells Smith, feed the information about the aliens to the robot, and while he's doing that, he says something about using using Will's brain for their computer. And this gets John angry because he goes, well, why didn't you tell them to use the robot's computer? And Smith has the answer. He says, well, the robot's too primitive. Yeah, I, so, I did, I did, but they said it was too primitive. And it's right. pretty convincing. It's fun to see, again, how Smith can talk his way out of anything. But he is actually telling the truth at that point because he did offer up the computers. He did, he did. And so they say, well, let's go. Lead us to the alien ship. And we cut back to the ship, and now Will's up on that porcelain uh, <laughs> pedestal, <laughs> prepping, prepping for departure, calculating the angle and velocity for liftoff. In the okay, I got to stop you there. When we're on the subject of angle and velocity, when they're aboard the chariot, uh, she, he says after Maureen spots the ship on the radar, and we see a picture of this radar screen. Again, it's the reverse <laughs> negative. And he says, they're at a bearing of 210 degrees. Okay, now you're the pilot, I'm not. But I have, you know, taken math courses, and I'm pretty sure, you know, directly west is 270 degrees. That is and correct. Not, and, and this bearing is above the that 270 degree mark. So this guy is at a bearing of more like 300 degrees. But, you know, anyway, nobody yeah. apparently who uh, works on Lost in Space uh, took any math because they were. it sounded great. 210 degree bearing. 
So oh, you... hopefully Will's a little better at the bearings than uh, Professor Robinson is. Yeah, well, one can only hope, but uh, the aliens are sensing that Will is sad about leaving his family, and they offer to erase his memory, but he refuses. He wants to remember them, and he even threatens to refuse cooperation unless he can stay with his parents, but they inform him, sadly, we will need you more. It seemed like it, this is the first time that the aliens give a, a little inference that they're not just you know, heartless. They actually right. say, uh, we can remove your memories if it will help, you know, if you if, if you would like. And he says, no, no, you know. So it, it sounded like a genuine offer, and it sounded, wasn't a threat. It sounded like if it'll make you more comfortable, you know. Exactly. So this is the first hint that they're not just totally cold, heartless creatures. And, right. uh, well, we'll see what happens here. Yeah, well, business is business, though. And uh, we do cut back outside the alien ship, and the band's all back together because the chariot pulls up, Don lands the jet pack, and they convene a little war party while crouching behind some rocks. And Smith says something, I love this, now that doesn't look so monstrous, does it? And Don pipes <laughs> up quickly, neither do you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A wonderful, great Donism, and you know, one of those things you're wondering who came up with that line. It's just almost too good for Don, but Don definitely thinks it, and Don is absolutely right. Yeah, and all the time we can hear that alien ship starting to wind up, and the robot explains that they can't attack the ship with the lasers because it's surrounded by a force field, again, in the fifth dimension. And, yeah, uh, and Professor Robinson says, well, go ahead and try. And says, they will disable me. He says, it doesn't matter. Do it anyway. Now, Marine's getting hysterical. I mean, she almost jumps up and runs towards it, but Don holds him back, yeah. holds her back. And that's when he orders the robot to go ahead and basically sacrifice itself to at least attempt to attack this ship. Yes, and the robot is going to do that. But uh, there's one little thing I want to point out. There's a nice little blooper here. When the robot is walking around one of the rocks and heading towards that uh, his moment of destiny, you can catch a tiny glimpse of Bob May, the guy, that, the actor that wore the robot suit, his lower legs extending below the uh, rubber legs. Uh, uh-huh. he, uh, it was supposed to be hit in the, the extension cord as well for his power. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. notice that. But I did notice another earlier blooper which is when they were getting out of the ship and they told uh, they told Smith to feed the information to the robot. When he turns away from the camera and starts to talk to the robot, they must have had some problems with the, the boom mic or something because they apparently replaced that dialogue and they just completely amputated the sound of the music that was going in the background up until that point. It just cuts off abruptly. So I think this is one of those they were running out of time even in the post-production and just had to leave little things like that you know, on the floor. Well, you're exactly right. The robot is, is going into action there, even though he says I, uh, they will disable me, but he marches forward and he's nearly destroyed for his effort because he fires some bolts and they bounce right back on him and he just sort of falls over. It's, it was it's not the robot's best day. He seems to be having a lot of bad luck the last few episodes. I love the the effect of that spe- special effect, though. It's very convincing, and he just completely goes out of commission. And uh, Professor Robinson orders him to attack again, but no, he's out. He's out for the count. He sure is. Back inside the ship, we can see that Will's watching this whole thing from the view screen, and he's begging the aliens to, to stop. And he even says in exchange that he'll agree to do the job they've asked. But he just wants to say goodbye first, and... Don't worry, Mom. Dr. Smith is fi- <laughs> Dr. Smith fixed everything. And uh, the parents turn on Dr. Smith, but there's really no time to deal with him now. Oh, that is such a priceless moment. The music. Did you hear the music that mm. plays when they turn? They slowly 
turn. Not just the parents, but Don, all three of them, in like this beautiful symphonic uh, collection as they just slowly turn the cold, you know, and, and he backs up, you know, he says, I can explain everything uh, later. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some time. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's just like, that's just such a wonderful moment. And the, the ship, however, is going to give him that opportunity to escape judgment at Nuremberg there for a moment because it's, it's revving up. You can hear it's that, that strange synthesizer sound. And again, you know, they have to focus on that. So that's how he gets out of that immediate uh, execution by three separate pistols. It's true, and uh, they keep cutting back inside, and, and they showed several times the, the, the close-up of on the view screen that Will's watching of Maureen looking all worried, and I couldn't help but re- be reminded of Auntie M and the Wicked Witch's crystal ball calling, Dorothy, Dorothy, and the music in the background, like you said, it's that sad, sad music and the sounds. And... Auditing computation at once. I can't. Honestly, I can't. The answer's right in front of me, but I just can't seem to. You must clear your mental circuits of emotional blockages. How can I? By forgetting your family completely and thinking only of the angle of trajectory. I'm trying. I'm trying as hard as I can, but I just can't. I order you to concentrate. What is that on your cheek? Whatever that is, it is causing our computer face cells to burn out. I order you to stop that. I can't help it. Computer vector cycles are short-circuiting. You must stop it. When you have helped us get back to our planet, we will see that you are returned to this miserable place. So there is no need for wasted emotion. It's not wasted. I love them, and I don't want to leave them at all. You will see them again, but you must try to concentrate. I'm trying as hard as I can, but I just keep thinking. Love, what is it? Can you eat it? What does it do, except perform the clarity of the brain? Well. Extraordinary. It seems to be a form of madness common to all of them. I can't help feeling the way I do. What primitive barbaric little creatures you are. On your own planet, you slaughter each other unceasingly, all in the name of love. At least we keep trying to get better. We don't go around turning people into machines. Let him go. His mind is far too primitive to be of any service to us. But in a few moments, we shall be fully powered up. Without him to complete the circuit, the power will destroy us. He is useless. Let him go. Let them go. Let them go. That was a great moment. And they they sort of turn away from the camera too and walk to their oblivion. And just just before we go to that last commercial, we see the ship explode. And if you were looking carefully, I don't know if you saw it, but Will actually pops back into the scene. He's a, he's mm-hmm. laying face down on the on the sand. Now originally, Will wasn't supposed to be back in that scene. We were supposed to be left wondering whether or not he had made it out. We were just supposed to see the ship explode and come back from commercial. But this was another place where the CBS censors insisted that we at least see that he was, if not alive, he's not trapped on the ship. So the scary Bad decision. They should have followed through with the writing because I I noticed that and I thought, dudes, you just blew the suspense during the commercial. You would have sold a lot more 
coffee cups full of Folgers coffee and whatever Cheerios. else. Cheerios. Yeah, Cheerios and Saran Wrap. Because, uh, I mean, you, it's revealed right there. You know, you can now go and channel surf and see what's happening on the other shows because you know everything's going to be the normal when you get back. But uh, I thought maybe you were going to tell us that they ran out of time in post-production to fade them in. No, the CBS guy said, nope, this, this episode is scary enough. We want to make sure that before you go to break, we know that Will made it out alive. So anyway, I agree with you on that one. So all's well that ends well. We see that Will's alive. He's a little shaken up. And again, the robots sort of come out on the short end of the stick. But at least he's not in pieces this time. He may be a little bit shaken up and acting a little foolish, but uh, he's alive. Will deserves some special credit here for his acting chops i mean he was very sincere his crying was very believable uh his uh care for his family was just it all not for a moment do you think you know this guy is just uh repeating lines it all seemed it all seemed like the wording that he would use and uh you know you you feel sorry for him and i actually felt sorry for the aliens too because it's sort of like you know they, they offered to bring him back it's a shame they have to be killed you know uh, but yeah, it's kind of tragic in that way. It is awfully sad, though, to see them destroyed, but you also feel happy that Will's reunited with his family. Yeah, well, I felt sorry for myself because <laughs> because compared to some of the aliens we're going to see down the pike, I really was hoping to see the... <laughs> I'd love to see the aliens from the fifth dimension uh, come back again because I think they're some of the coolest aliens in the entire series. But unfortunately never going to see them or their cool ship again so do you think it's because of the uh censors at cbs did they say okay we'll let you go this time but from here on out we need more family friendly aliens i I don't really know because they could uh, you know it's it's never it's never really explicitly put out i don't have any way of telling it but they were uh, as far as the aliens go they were some of the most uh interesting and creepy looking aliens that they had in the series but um you always you, you always wonder because in Irwin Allen's uh, world, you know, everything gets recycled and money always seems and time production always seems to be, you know, paramount. Uh, of the what was the what was the name of the studio? It wasn't Paramount Lot. I don't know who was Fox the Lot. Studio. The Fox Lot. Yeah, uh, money is paramount on the Fox Lot. Uh, be that <laughs> as it may, they he, he, he probably was basically saying I just don't want to pay for that latex anymore. Let's just use the, you know, the grease paint. <laughs> well, yeah, and it and they did talk about in the book. They said that makeup was was very time consuming to put on. It took like 2 hours to take on and 2 hours to take off and you know, every day. So that was another thing. It's a lot easier just to throw a mask on top of someone. So maybe that had something to do with it. But, you know, they spent all that money on that that cool ship and the and the uh, the alien masks and the I think the claws actually do come back sometime later, but yeah, I'm sad to see them go. But as far as the, as you coined it, the Gilligan's Islands uh, style episodes where someone's coming to visit the Robinsons, I think this one does it with style. I love the the production, aliens, the ship, everything was very unusual. Um, everything was pretty well executed. And um, I thought Dr. Smith was really good. He was menacing, but he still played his part with enough humor that he's not like totally evil. And, you know, the fact that, like we said before, that he had that, you know, he had that little ring around his neck that was sort of forcing him to do everything. We can still kind of get the get out of jail free card and think, well, he's not a murderer, really. He's just a little self-centered. So, yeah, he'll just just sacrifice the children rather than, you know, anyone else. 
I mean, there, there's, okay, there's one thing about being a hero about saving children, but when you're actually volunteering them to be sacrificed for your own 40-year-old or 50-year-old skin, that's pretty kind of pathetic, especially oh, yeah. when it's the one kid that you like the most. But Smith does have these moments in which, you know, he'll step up to the plate, like when he saved the family uh, going south of the planet and he found out that they were all going to die. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So uh, we have that floating around in the background. But at the same time, you can also kind of realize, well, heck, it's one thing to say these things, but once you have that thing around your neck and basically an alien presence has got their their telepathic hands wrapped around your neck it might be another matter to actually stand up and say you know go ahead and strangle me i don't care anymore i care too much about the kid you know i mean that's it's easy for us to say it but it's probably a whole nother matter to actually do it well it wouldn't be smith to do that that's for sure he hasn't shown that kind of self-sacrifice up to this point um so but you liked it you enjoyed yeah, oh, it. oh I, I loved it i thought this was uh, uh the this comes in very close after those uh, other first original five episodes. It's it's right up there. It's it's. I don't know that I would put it ahead of any of those other episodes, but I put it neck and neck with uh, you know number five. It's a close number six. Mm. Well, that's great. Yeah. So before we go, uh, the last shots of this episode, we cut back to the Jupiter. And John's back to writing in his dear diary. He's setting us up for the premise of the next episode and the teaser for that one. And he's mentioning that the castaways are prepping for the next round of extreme heat and that they have to conserve water. And I thought this was kind of good because it actually ties into a little throwaway line that he had where he mentioned he was looking for a new source of fresh water. And it also ties into the fact that, yeah, the planet is getting hot again. And so that's some rare continuity that uh, is easily missed. I certainly don't remember that from watching the show previously. Um, and I, I always love those scenes where they cut away to the Dear Diary scenes. And these, <laughs> this time he's wearing a T-shirt, you know. <laughs> I love that Parker Penn set he's got. Uh, so we'll go into it next time when we do the uh, the intro for the next episode. But it does leave us showing Don's outside and Judy's watching him as he's working on that water conversion unit. And suddenly, uh, wait a minute, did you hear something? Suddenly there's an earthquake. We get some nice stock footage of boulders rolling t- down. Planet the- quake, planet quake. Yes, planet quake, <laughs> planet quake. And Don shoes Judy out out of danger at the last second a giant boulder starts to fall on Don and will it crush him are we going to find out Uh yeah well it's the ultimate cliffhanger isn't it I mean literally the cliff is hanging in (laughs) midair when it freeze frames it's very cool so we're going to have to wait kids until next week because the the freeze frame comes in to remind us to tune in next week and we go to end credits for invaders from the fifth dimension so that wraps that one up uh now it does give me hope you know for uh some of these other episodes that i remembered as not having such cool looking aliens or such you know recycled spaceships and all the rest of it that the writing alone can really make these these stories sing and uh this definitely had that great writing in it that was a big big part of this episode wonderful wonderful writing it really was Lot, lots of things to love about this one. So. so it's not always the plot, you know. And like I say, it can be style over substance. And it's always best when it is. It's got the great plot, plus it's got, you know, the great costuming and 
the great acting and the great dialogue. I mean, you know, more is always better than less. But, you know, two out of three ain't bad. And when you got uh, Smith delivering great lines and uh, good subplots, it can still make these things really, really a lot of fun. Well, we'll see how you feel about it after we uh, watch the next episode. But for now, this wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the ninth episode of Lost in Space titled The Oasis. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. See you then. Bye. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.